This is History West Midlands. Joseph Chamberlain was one of the dominant figures of political life in Britain and its empire in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, famously described by a young Winston Churchill as the man who made the political weather. But less attention has been given to Chamberlain's personal life, which was scarred by tragedy when his first two wives died in childbirth. Then, after more than a decade, Joe surprised everyone when he met and proposed to the beautiful American Mary Endicott, the much younger daughter of a member of the US cabinet. Mary became Joe's third wife and the stepmother of his children, including Austin and Neville, who would later become Chancellor of the Exchequer and Prime Minister respectively. At Chamberlain's homes at Highbury in Birmingham and in London, Mary was a famous hostess, who for more than two decades was at the very centre of the country's political and social life. Then, after Joe suffered a stroke in 1906, she remained at his side until he died in 1914. Intrigued by Mary, historian Justine Pick spent more than a year researching her voluminous correspondence to uncover the life of this charismatic woman and her marriage to Chamberlain. In this programme, Justine talks to History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs. Justine, can you tell us about the early marriages of Joseph Chamberlain? Joseph came to Birmingham in 1854 to join his uncle's firm, Nettlefolds, and it's through his uncle's family that he was introduced to the prominent Unitarian families of Birmingham, basically the Birmingham Elite Society. And through this, he met Harriet Kenrick, and they got married in 1861. Now, Harriet is the daughter of Archibald Kenrick, iron-founding family, and Harriet was the mother of Beatrice and Austin. Unfortunately, they were only married for two years. How did she die? She died just a couple of days after giving birth to Austin, so complications from childbirth. How did Joe respond to this death? He obviously was devastated. He tended to flee away from his bereavement and the children were very much left in the care of their Kenrick grandparents and aunts and uncles. He married again in 1868, this time to Harriet's cousin, Florence, the mother of his four other children, Neville, Ida, Ethel and Hilda. Unfortunately, tragedy struck in very similar vein and Florence dies giving birth to their fifth child. What was the relationship like between Joe and his wives? From all accounts, they seem to have been happy marriages. Obviously, Harriet's very tragically short, only a couple of years. Florence in particular, as Joe's career was developing and evolving, she was a very close confidant and advisor, and he felt her death very, very keenly. Florence died in 1875, which is when Joe was still mayor of Birmingham, and he was mayor up until 1876, and then he got elected as MP for Birmingham, and this is where you see the start of him going into national politics and moving away from the local sort of arena. And where were the family living at this time? He did have a house in Edgbaston, but then he commissioned the house at Highbury to be built. And this was finished in about 1880 when the family moved in. Austin and Beatrice would have been sort of going into adult time, but all the children lived at Highbury. And Joe sort of 
went backwards and forwards. He also purchased a house in London, a townhouse, purely for his parliamentary career, and that was at 40 Prince's Gardens. And it's a decade, I think, or more of him being a widower, and then Mary comes onto the scene. How and where did he meet Mary? He met Mary in Washington, D.C., He went on a diplomatic mission to sort out a fisheries treaty between the United States and Canada. He was introduced to Washington society by the British minister at Washington and so met many members of the United States government, including Secretary Endicott, who was Secretary for War in Grover Cleveland's administration. So he attended receptions and was invited to dinners. He first met Mary at a legation reception, which was in the December. I don't think that was anything significant. I think they were literally just introduced to each other. However, the Endicotts did host a dinner, which Joe attended. And this is where we start to see the attraction. He wrote home to Beatrice, his eldest daughter, and described Mrs Endicott as a very pleasant woman, but also commented that their daughter was one of the brightest and most intelligent girls he had ever met. So who was this lady who put a sparkle into Joe's monocle? Mary was the daughter of William Crowning Shield Endicott, who was a Massachusetts Supreme Court judge, and her mother was Ellen Peabody. Now, Joe described her father as the bluest of New England blood, as he was a descendant of the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony. On her mother's side is the Peabody family, who, through their great-grandfather, became very rich merchant ship owners who made fortunes through importing pepper from Sumatra. And what sort of lady was Mary at this time? A lady of society. She was well-connected. Her mother was a noted society hostess. Mary would have attended all society functions, not only in Salem, but also in Boston, but also in Washington through her father's role in the government. She was 23 when Joe visited Washington, so similar age to Joe's eldest children. But she was well-placed, knew how to conduct herself in political society, and she was brought up to be a lady. So Joe's on an official visit. She catches his eye. What happens then? Well, I think the courtship began about a week after that dinner. He does send her a basket of roses and a poem, and he calls upon the family. So this sort of slow courtship starts. Her father gets on quite well with Joe, and I think they think this is just going to be a nice friendship while Joe is visiting to conduct his business. However, by the time we get to February, Joe actually proposes. And Mary wants to accept. Was the engagement straightforward? No, there were complications. First of all, the family were understandably concerned at the age difference. Joe was actually 51 and Mary was just slightly younger than his two eldest children. The family, I think, hoped that once he returned to England, the courtship might fizzle out. The other complication was that it was actually election year in the United States and the treaty that Joe had been there to negotiate would need accepting and ratifying. And they felt that the news would raise eyebrows and perhaps hinder the election. So it was agreed in the end that nothing would be said until after the election, which was in the November. Mary and Joe don't see each other again till basically a few days before the wedding. So this is an engagement that's conducted by correspondence. 
and sending of pictures. He sends pictures of Highbury to show her what everything that it looks like. And she also communicates with the children as well by letter. And during this time, did the news leak out in the UK? No, nothing is mentioned. It's all kept very hush-hush, even played down in America. Once he's left America in the March, everything calms down and people believe nothing has happened. And it is actually not till the 7th of November that they announce officially the engagement in the newspapers and they marry on the 15th of November. The ceremony will be of the simplest character, Without bridesmaids or best man, and no guests will be invited except the bride's relatives, President and Mrs Cleveland, and a few of the higher government officials. And did any of the family attend the wedding in Washington, D.C.? No, uh, Joe travels incognito, if you like, saying he's going on another sort of mission. He has to get excused from the Parliament session. Nobody knows until, basically, after the event has happened. And after the wedding, did they go on honeymoon or...? Did they come back directly to the UK? They honeymoon at a family property belonging to the Peabody's and then set sail for Paris and the Riviera to continue with their honeymoon before starting a new life in England and Birmingham. She actually arrived at Highbury in Birmingham Christmas Eve 1888. And Joe was Birmingham at that time. He was the mega star. So what was the reaction here in Birmingham when she arrived? For the first few days, obviously arriving on Christmas Eve, it's very, very family-based. Immediately, Jo's extended family come round for dinners and she has to meet everybody. But first week in January, they have to attend a welcome at the town hall. And this is where Jo's constituents have organised rather a grand affair to welcome the new bride. They even present her with specially made jewellery that the jewellers of Birmingham have made for her. And she's actually quite impressed. This is where she first gets an idea of how important Joe is to the people of Birmingham. Joe's home at Highbury was extremely important both to the family and as a political centre. How did she view the house and its surroundings? She does immediately fall in love with the glass houses and the gardens. She's very much an outdoors person, a great believer in fresh air is good for everything. And uh, she writes enthusiastically to her mother about the gardens, describing them. I got the sense that perhaps she wasn't a great fan of Venetian Gothic, purely from the fact that she sees his library and makes the statement, haven't you got an awful lot of books? And that's about it. (laughs) Some of the decor may not have been quite to her liking. However, her own bedroom and her own room downstairs that uh, she creates later on, those were specifically her areas that she could do as she wished. I think if anybody's ever visited Highbury and they see the beautiful uh, woodwork, and the design of John Henry Chamberlain, it's not something you could have adapted. So I think Mary does it in her own way by a lot more soft furnishings and perhaps what people would call clutter. (laughs) She does bring a more homely feel to Highbury. But I think she takes her time. She realises that she's coming into an already existing family home where everybody's got their place, the children are all there, and so she's very gentle at first, even though she is immediately mistress of the house and has to take over the roles of running the house, looking after the staff and organising all the social and domestic arrangements. 
And a chatelaine of Highbury. Mary must have been in charge of quite a sizable staff. It's difficult to know the exact number, but the 1891 census for Highbury lists 12 members of staff that are staying there on that night. And this would have included the butler, housemaids, cook, kitchen maids, footmen, and important to Mary, a lady's maid. But there were also the gardening staff, a gardener living on site, the head gardener. Now, some of those could have lived in the local area and came to work and gone home. So it's very difficult to get a precise number. We've also found from Mary's correspondence that staff obviously travelled between the two residents with them. The ladies' maid and the butler went back and forth between Prince's Gardens and to Highbury. But I consider there probably was skeleton staff that would be left at one residence when the family move and live for a few months in the other residence. And did Mary bring a different vibe to the house? Yes. Everything becomes a little bit more fun, I think, particularly for the older Chamberlain children. She encourages them to have friends to stay for the weekend, to join in any occasions that are taking place. She encourages them to go to dances at the assembly rooms and then they can come back and have an impromptu dance in the hall at Highbury. She brings cotillion dancing, which is a form of country square dancing with couples, which she teaches Neville, and then Neville shows their friends. So they're having a lot more fun, and there's fireworks in the grounds. I don't think any of this went on before when it was just with their father. So tell us a bit more about the social events that Mary organised. She's thrown in at the deep end quite quickly. As soon as Christmas is over, they have visiting VIPs. So she has to host a complete weekend of events where the guests are staying, but they also have to entertain them. So she has to organise dinner parties for about 30 people on two nights, inviting Birmingham VIPs to come and meet the visiting ones. She takes this very, very seriously. And I think she's been educated in this by her mother on how to host a party, make sure that there's a good mix so that people can talk and the conversation doesn't stick. That is one of her favourite sayings. She holds her very first ball at Highbury in February 1889 and she describes this in detail to her mother. This is a charming house for a dance, for the hall is just the place for it and is so large that a great many people can be disposed of. What with the drawing room, boudoir breakfast room, conservatories, fernery and corridor, as well as the dining room. There are plenty of places to sit in and nothing has to be disarranged, which of course simplifies things very much. Everyone entered into it with great spirit and we were quite satisfied in the way in which it went off. She also liked to host at homes or tea parties. I think she wants to make an impression in these early months and she organises quite large events, which I think people in the town might have been quite surprised by. After this large tea party, she tells her mother... All of Birmingham flocked to Highbury. I heard of an unbroken stream of carriages from Ardors to the bottom of Cannon Hill Park. I sent out 250 invitations. Nearly all of them would double, and some more. And I should say that almost everyone came. I had six or seven girls, which proved to be a great feature of entertainment. I have since heard that people enjoyed themselves extremely, 
and it was a charming departure. I had the girls in the dining room. As Joe expressed it, it was a Yankee notion he approved of. But there were also family parties. Yes. Highbury's used, obviously, for a lot of political events and to further Joe's political aspirations, but it was also the family home. There were family get-togethers, particularly later on, once grandchildren arrive at Christmas. Mary delighted in the grandchildren and hosted what became an annual event, the Christmas tree party, where the children dressed up in fancy dress. There would be a giant Christmas tree in one of the rooms with candles and classicals. There would be games. Other family members brought their children and their nannies and they would play around in the hall and be given presents and have a little tea as well. So when you mention Joseph Chamberlain to me, I picture this fairly austere-looking politician with the orchid and the monocle. Was he participating in these family events? Yes. Mary's letters to her mother reveal that he was very much a part. One particular Christmas where Neville is dressed as Father Christmas, in padded cushions to, and, and an outfit was made for him. He's very much part of it, handing out little purses to the children with money in as a gift and encouraging them to play their musical instruments around the hall. I think we find out from Mary that particularly with the grandchildren, there's a much softer side to Joe. He was a family man. And everything in the house didn't always go smoothly. Highbury was like... Any other family home, they have their comical moments, which Mary recounts to her mother, such as the time when Joe's locked into the library and cannot get out. He has to climb out of the window and throw stones up to Mary's bedroom window so that somebody can let him in. There's also time where they're locked in the glass houses. The staff go round and turn all the lights off and lock the doors and not realise that uh, Joe and Neville are still inside and they have to shout and bang and fumbling around in the dark to try until somebody comes and rescues them, which Mary finds quite funny. <laughs> and as this Chatelaine of Highbury, she must have drawn the attention of the press, both in Britain and in the United States. What did they say? There is a difference between how she was reported in America and how she was reported in England. Very much she's Mrs Chamberlain, the wife of Joseph, and very much they attended everything together, so she would be mentioned always in context with Joe. They may comment on what she was wearing or events that they attended. In the United States, the focus is very, very much on Mary. She is one of quite a few American heiresses or ladies from society that came over to England and married lords, even dukes. Mary's obviously slightly different in that sense that she marries Joe, who is not a member of the aristocracy. However, they are very much keen to promote how important Mary is in his work and how important the Anglo-American relationship is. There is a time when Washington reports... Mrs Joseph Chamberlain will become the first American woman to become a peeress in her own right. King Edward is expected to create her Viscountess Highbury. This is not true. This was fake news, if you like. And Mary did not become the Viscountess of Highbury. Her mother actually writes to her and tells her of these reports in the American papers. And she returns telling her mother, I thought Joe would die of laughing over the Viscountess of Highbury. 
He agreed it was disagreeable to have such a thing perpetuated for all time, as this seems to be. Mary and Joe lead a peripatetic life in that they spend some time in Birmingham, but they also have this home in London, which is a political house. Tell us a bit more about that. In London, they have a townhouse, 40 Prince's Gardens, close to Parliament. There were rounds of dinners, balls, royal state visits, and then there was also events where you were required to go to the theatre, to the ballet. There were also garden parties in London and society weddings. Mary's appointment diaries reveal that the pace of this was sometimes absolutely relentless, and particularly once Joe becomes colonial secretary and he's elevated in the ranks of government cabinet. Everything is governed by an etiquette, though. So if somebody had invited you, you must reciprocate. And this becomes quite a task for Mary to organise. She had to get it right so that you didn't offend. And she had to practice this when she first came to England. There would have been similarities with the United States society, but there certainly were differences. And she comments particularly the differences between Birmingham and London. In London, when everybody makes calls, everybody's doing the same thing. A lot of people are out and you can just leave your card to say that you've done your call. In Birmingham, she moaned that everybody was always in. (laughs) And so she had to stay for tea. And it means that she didn't get her list of calls whittled down very quickly. Hence why I think she used to start to organise large events so that she could get everything done and honour her commitments in one go. And during the time that they were in London, the season, there were some very famous, I think, if not notorious, social events like particular balls. Has your research revealed anything about Mary's attendance at these events? Mary loved London society life. She wanted to be part of it all. And she was. And Joe. And I think Mary actually eased Joe's acceptance into this circle. And within the season, there were certain annual highlights... Yes, particularly in Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee year, 1897. There were lots of visiting colonial premiers, which Joe and Mary were very, very involved with. But from society's point of view, the big, great event was the Devonshire Ball, which was hosted by the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire. This was fancy dress. Royalty was invited. The Prince and Princess of Wales attended and other members of the royal family. And there was a photographer in a tent in the garden, taking portrait photographs. And they are wonderful to see. Joe was actually in Louis XVI-style dress, which was a costume in rose-coloured corded silk. Mary went as Madame d'Epinay, who was a French writer and woman of fashion, which probably speaks a little bit what Mary wanted to portray. The Duchess of Devonshire, as the hostess, was Zenobia the Queen... So they were absolutely spectacular and a lot of money was spent on all the costumes. And how did Joe, this politician to his fingertips, how did he react to this? Did he enjoy it? Unfortunately, there was a bit of a dampener on the Devonshire ball, which was a shame for Mary because she was so looking forward to it. Mary and Joe had hosted their own event the night previously where all the colonial premiers were invited and the Prince and Princess of Wales were due to attend their function as honoured guests 
to greet everyone. Unfortunately, it didn't go to plan. There were crowds outside and the Prince and Princess of Wales carriage arrived. They couldn't get out. The police couldn't clear it, so they drove off. So unfortunately, it was a bit of an embarrassment. And Joe was in an awful mood about it. And I think he wasn't happy the next night. Obviously, the Prince was in attendance at the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire's ball. From the impression I got from Mary's letters, I think they see all the festivities and then they leave quite early. So I don't think Joe was in the mood for the party. At the centre of the season and the whole of British society at this time was the monarchy. How did they react to Mary, this American? Joe, as a member of government, had to attend state occasions and they used to get summoned by the Queen to attend certain events. Mary and Joe stayed at Windsor, they stayed at Sandringham and they stayed at Osborne on the Isle of Wight. It would appear Queen Victoria quite liked Mary, describing her in her own diary as very pretty and young-looking, is very ladylike with a nice, frank, open manner. In 1906, tragedy struck. Joe had a stroke from which he was never going to really recover. What insights can we get from Mary about that stroke and the subsequent years? Life as they knew it changed completely. First of all, the family were very, very keen to play down the extent of what had happened to Joe. I think there was a hope that he would recover quite quickly and get back to how he was before. Unfortunately, that never quite happened. There was improvement at stages, but it was slow. He was left where he couldn't read, he couldn't hold his monocle, he had difficulty with his eyes and he had difficulty walking. He wasn't really seen out in public for nearly eight years. That's not to say his political career totally ended. He still had visitors to Highbury and also at their London townhouse. Mary tried to stimulate and engage him with visits with politicians and so he could still keep abreast of all the news. And obviously Austin at this time was also very engaged in politics. But at this time, Mary's still a comparatively young woman. Yes, It's quite sad to see her diaries with the pace of life that they'd had and how it changes. I mean, obviously, it was devastating for Joe, but it was also a major shock and a major change to Mary. And they are quite isolated for a while, while obviously Joe is trying to make some recovery. And in 1914, Joe finally dies. Yes, he was actually still always an MP, even during the time that he had suffered his stroke. And he actually, in January 1914, announced that he wouldn't stand again for re-election. They gave one last garden party on the 6th of June. And there are pictures of Joe being taken round in his bath chair to greet the thousands of people who came to see him. The family left Highbury on the 19th of June and go to London. And then sadly, on the 30th of June in London, Joe suffers a heart attack. A few days later, Mary notes in her little personal diary. 10.15. My darling dies quite peacefully in my arms. Family all present. Mary's only 50 years old, so she has many years in front of her. What happens? Along with the rest of the family, she leaves Highbury and she goes to Prince's Gardens and lives there. Two years later, she actually remarries to Canon William Carnegie, who is Canon of Westminster Abbey and Rector of St Margaret's, Westminster. She remains at the heart of Westminster 
the life she loved. So she's still involved in the political world. He also had five daughters. So in the end, Mary becomes stepmother to 11 children. A role I think she enjoys. She still remained very, very close to the Chamberlain children. They stay and visit and they become one large extended family. Canon Carnegie dies in 1936. But Mary lives on till 1957. Yes, she was 93 years old when she died. A newspaper obituary described Mary as... Quiet in manner, self-effacing by nature, she yet exerted a profound influence in shaping Mr Chamberlain's later years. In a public tribute to her, he acknowledged that during their married life she had sustained him by her courage and cheered him by her companionship, adding, I have found in her my truest counsellor. When you look at her and her life, what do you think she tells us about the history of these times? Her letters to her mother, which she wrote religiously, two letters a week, tell us about the changes in society, but we have to remember they are very, very much from a perspective of upper class. And I use that term specifically upper class. Her first husband, Joe, very often much was made of his middle-class background. I don't think in any way, shape or form that Mary would have described herself as middle-class. And we have to remember that Joe and Mary were perhaps one of the first to be accepted into that social circle of the elite with the aristocracy and royalty. So they are interesting from that point of view. After Joe's death, she's still very much part of that circle and that's in her own right. That's an interesting aspect of a woman of her generation. And what do you think the marriage between Joe and Mary tells us about Joe? I believe it was a happy marriage. And I think marriage and family was very important to him. But he definitely wanted a particular wife in the fact that she could support him in all that he did, and Mary very much did that. She was by his side throughout everything, and she relished that role. She very, very much believed that was her important role in life, to assist him. That doesn't mean she didn't have her own independence. She used to travel independently backwards and forwards to London and do her own thing, and Joe seemed quite happy with that. She's made me smile from her letters. She's made me sort of gasp and go, oh dear Mary, that's not good. (laughs) So it has been a very, very interesting experience, but it's also presented another side to the Chamberlain family and a more intimate glimpse into their lives. Justine, thank you very much indeed for giving us insights on a man who I thought I knew something about, but you've given us a totally new dimension from the research that you've done. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You can find out more about life at Highbury in our accompanying podcast, in which Professor Peter Marsh discusses his book, The House Where the Weather Was Made, a biography of Chamberlain's Highbury, which is available from our website, www.historywm.com, Amazon, or from bookstores. At the website, you will also find other books, articles, podcasts and films about Joseph Chamberlain and the political history of the West Midlands.